Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Mile End Institute podcast. Today, we are fantastically glad to welcome Deborah Mattinson, who is one of the UK's leading pollsters and strategists and founding director at Britain Thinks. Before co-founding Britain Thinks, she's done all sorts of things, but was also very importantly pollster to Gordon Brown, first as Chancellor of the Exchequer and then as Prime Minister. In 2010, she published a book called Talking to a Brick Wall, the story of the new Labour years through the eyes of the voters. And she has just published the follow-up, if you like, to that book, Beyond the Red Wall, which looks at why Labour lost in 2019 and what it might try to do about that. So welcome, Deborah. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I very much enjoyed reading the book. There's so much in there that we could talk about. So uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to kind of limit the conversation to just a, a few key points, if you like. But the the first thing I'd like you to do is to tell our listeners a little bit about why you think focus group research in particular is so useful. Yes. Uh, And by the way, actually, one thing I would say is I'm often asked to make this point and people often say, you know, why it's better than polls or why you would use focus groups rather than polls. And I think the first thing to say is this isn't an either or. It's not a sort of pick and mix. You need both. You need polling, you need quantitative evidence, obviously, but you also need qualitative evidence. Now, that might be focus groups. For the book, I did focus groups, but I also did quite a lot of what we would call ethnographic style interviews, where I did depth interviews one-on-one with people where I spent quite a lot of time with them, usually in their home, hanging out in their kitchen, drinking cups of tea with them, going with them to pick up the kids from school, wandering down the road to the shops, doing whatever they were doing that day and just sort of watching them, listening to them, chatting to them in a very informal way. That's qualitative research too. And I think that what you need is to use the two together to get a sort of fuller picture. So so what do you get from qualitative? I mean, in a nutshell, what I always say is a poll will tell you that 70% of people think this or that or the other you need the qualitative research to understand why and to sort of dig deeper and to really get, if you like, the kind of motivations that lie behind those attitudes or beliefs or behaviours. And that's what we set out to do. And the two work together really, really well. And what do you say to critics of you know, focus group research when they say, well, they can be too easily led perhaps by the convener's questions or sometimes by a particularly powerful personality in the group? So to the first, I, I mean, I would say... Yeah, that's right. They can. You know, if you want to run a focus group to prove a particular point to yourself, then sure, you you probably, if you're a skilled moderator, can can bring people around to your point of view. But I'm not really quite sure what you learn from that. It is all about the skill of the of the moderator. And a lot of people, actually, what I hear more often is it's quite easy. I, I hear lots of people saying, I did a focus group. Lots of journalists do that. Well, you didn't actually. You chatted to a few people and that isn't quite the same. So a lot of it is in the skill of the moderator. And I mean, I think, you know, the moderator has to be genuinely curious and genuinely want to reveal a truth rather than simply prove their own point. Um, I mean, another thing that people say to me a lot is, why do I need to do this? Because, you know, MPs say this, I chat to people in my surgery. Well, again, yeah, you chat to people in your surgery, it's not the same as running a focus group. And crucially, if you're a politician, what a focus group will tell you is what people say about you when you're not in the room, rather than what they'll say to your face. 
So, so I think that's that's pretty important too. And actually, you you do as as you say in the book, use these in home ethnographic interviews. What what do they give you that a, a focus group doesn't give you? I mean, these are a sort of very anthropological technique, aren't they? So, what value do they in particular add? People will tell you what they think, but often to get you get to a different sort of truth by simply watching what they do and and you know really kind of seeing them if you like in their in their habitat in their life you know seeing how their lives are you get a different level of understanding and and that for me was particularly important you know when i was looking at something like these red wall seats because i really wanted to understand the context that people were living in and how they felt about that their place seemed to me to be really important a really important driver to lots of different attitudes that then translated into how they voted and so it was incredibly important i mean if i just sat in a in a sterile hotel room which i did as well of course i would have missed out on a whole layer of understanding i think of the mindset of some of the people that i spoke to and one thing that does as you say come out very very strongly in the book is uh, you know the sense of belonging and a sense of place that these yes. people have but also i mean uh, geographical immobility if you like um both literal and and emotional um you you talk for example about people in smaller towns seeing what we might regard when we don't live there as quite nearby big cities is actually quite a long way away from them. And sometimes in terms of public transport and the cost of public transport, that's actually true, as you point out. Was that something that perhaps politicians and, and perhaps the rest of us really underestimate? Oh, I, I think people really underestimate it. They assume, and picking up on exactly the example I think that you've just quoted there, which is in the constituency of Hindburn in Accrington, one of the people that I interviewed talked about his son moving to Manchester, and he said it as sad as if he'd moved to Australia, because Manchester was somewhere that Donald never went. It was somewhere that he had no connection with at all. And, and you could kind of understand why when you discovered that to get there by train took an hour and 20 minutes, even though it's less than 20 miles away. It's sort of unimaginable for somebody that lived 20 miles outside the centre of London to have to spend an hour and 20 minutes getting there. And, and I think people often don't realise that. So, And the other thing that I found that was really interesting was how people's lives were often played out within a very small number of streets. So people that I spoke to whose, whose work, whose social lives, whose family lives were all contained within a very, very tiny geographical area. And that gave them an incredibly strong sense of community that I think it's really hard to understand if you don't have that context. And it also gave them this sense of isolation, disconnect, from those nearer big cities that you might think they would have a lot to do with, but they talked about them as if they were another planet. I wanted to ask you in the context of that, whether you thought um, what we've seen recently, which is this face-off, if you like, between um, some uh, metro mayors and, and the government, do you think that might to some extent change that for some people? In other words, you know, is, is Andy Burnham, I think, going to be seen as, as the mayor of a region now, um, whereas perhaps he wasn't before? I think that's a really interesting point. And in fact, I, I was so interested by what was happening that week that I went back to some of the people that I interviewed broadly in his area and asked them what they felt. And I think they had quite mixed views, actually. But certainly there was a sense that perhaps he spoke with a greater knowledge of the broader region than Boris Johnson ever could, and that he should have been given more of a hearing. But people were, were quite mixed as well, because they were quite worried about the idea of, of playing politics. You know, I think it's quite interesting how the pandemic 
has played out in terms of political attitudes. My feeling is actually we're almost reading too much into it in terms of it's you know, it's almost not seen as a political issue, which I think is quite interesting as well. Yes, and, and you've written actually very recently, haven't you, about your sort of return visits to these places. We, yes. we might be able to kind of address that um, uh, a little bit later. Um one of the other things that comes out, as well as this, you know, very strong sense of place, uh, and it's it's a very strong sense of resentment in, in many ways against uh, the other, however that other um, is defined. It might be so-called scroungers, uh, it might be immigrants, but and it might be London. <laughs> that definitely comes through very, very strongly. It might even include people who get themselves a, an education or a higher education. Some of those resentments have been there for quite some time, haven't they? I mean, you know, if one studies politics, you know, in the 1960s, you can hear people saying, you know, pretty much the same thing about, you know, people on welfare benefits and certainly some of the same things about immigrants, um, for example. So why do you think those things have hit Labour so hard now? Um, whereas they didn't back in the 60s and 70s. I mean, I think it is quite interesting, as you say, those views have been around for a, for a very long time. I think what happened with Labour, if we're looking at, at, at why Labour lost, was it, there was a sort of perfect storm. It was a whole bunch of things coming together at that moment. But, but this was a slow car crash. This is something that had been happening over quite a long period of time, the sense of the Labour Party moving away from those people. And I think it's, it's, it's a combination of things. It's a, there's a sense that the party had been taken over by, and here's the otherness coming in, by, by a group of sort of quite snooty graduates who had very different views from the people that I spoke to and who they felt looked down on them. So it wasn't just a sense of being isolated, but it was also a sense of, of being sneered at, quite frankly, by, by some of the, you know, the, the kind of political class, and particularly the people running the Labour Party, who they felt didn't share their views and didn't like them very much either. So, so there was a, a, a combination of things. It was turbocharged by, by Jeremy Corbyn and by Brexit, but neither of those things on their own caused what happened. And then I think also you have to give some credit to the Tories for winning as well. There was a whole piece about, about Boris Johnson and how he's seen and how he, as, as one person put it to me, sort of de-snobbified the Tory party and gave them the license to do something they'd never imagined that they would ever have done before. And one person said to me, you know, my grandfather would be spinning in his grave if he knew that I'd voted Tory at the last election. But I did, you know, but I didn't do it lightly. So there's a whole combination of things. But I, I think also if, if, if we're saying, why did this suddenly matter now? I think it's always mattered, that otherness, the, the resentment of, of scroungers and, and the fear of immigrants and, and, and the feeling that their own interests were not well represented. But, you know, when you walk around some of those streets in some of those places, there is just this palpable feeling of neglect. If you are a young person living in Accrington, living in, in Stoke, you've got very little chance of getting a decent job. And, and when you walk around those streets, you can see the kind of, you know, the crumbling remains of what once was glorious. And and that's, I think that's part of it too, that there is this sense of loss, which again connects back to the place, this sense that, you know, all of the areas that I went to had very proud pasts. It wasn't just that they had had, you know, kind of, they'd been economically viable. They were really proud of what they did. So Manchester and their railways, uh, you know, Stoke and the potteries, um, Accrington and the Norrie brick, it was the hardest brick ever made. It was used to build the Empire State Building. Huge sense of pride, but all in the past and a feeling that nobody had been 
looking out for them um, recently. But also a sense when it comes to Brexit in particular that that might actually provide a solution to to those problems in the sense that you know many of the people you talked to thought that um, leaving the European Union would somehow bring manufacturing industry back. That strikes me perhaps as a, a little bit ambitious and would even say slightly delusional. I mean, Brexit, and, and you know, as, as you'll have seen, I, I devoted a whole chapter to Brexit because I thought it was so interesting. This is a group of people who in, in lots of ways have turned their back on politics, uh, feel that politics hasn't delivered for them. But the one thing that, that felt different was Brexit. And they felt that their voice had been heard. And they felt that their, their views and values were being represented. And it, it's best characterised by somebody that I interviewed in a focus group, actually not in the Red Wall, but summed up what so many of the people that I heard, heard there uh, said. Guy who said he woke up the next day and he t- switched on the telly, found out we'd gone Brexit. And he said, I felt like England had won the World Cup. He felt literally sort of joyful and he described getting out of bed and running around his room, punching the air with joy. And then he turned to me and he said, and it was also sticking up two fingers to the elite. And there was a feeling of this combination of sort of joyfulness that, you know, patriotic sort of joyfulness combined with a feeling of turning around and sticking two fingers up to people who hadn't wanted it to happen for their own reasons. But yes, you're quite right. I mean, some of the people that I spoke to had extremely ambitious views about what was going to happen now um, and how Brexit would facilitate that. And yes, I mean, it, it was hard not to listen to them and assume that they're going to feel quite disappointed, you know, that the old industries that had gone a long time before might be revived, that somehow having this sort of agency over our own country and our own economy that they feel that has been lacking would 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 deliver to them. How important do you think it will be for Brexit to deliver something tangible? And I guess I could ask the same question about another um, issue that you address in the book, this so-called levelling up agenda, even though people didn't actually necessarily understand that that term. I mean, to, to what extent is it going to have to be made a reality for the Conservatives to hold on to those people's votes? I think you're right to conflate those two in the question because they're definitely conflated in people's heads and and they are expecting quite a lot you know and I mean I think that you know the conservatives there's there's a lot of cheer for the conservatives in this book but I think there are also a lot of big watch outs and one is about this question of how high the bar has been set and the massive expectations that there are now for delivery and I think that it's interesting as you say but nobody uses the term leveling up they looked a bit blank when I asked them about it And in fact, when I explained it, they don't buy into the principle of levelling up either, because for a lot of the people I spoke to, this is a zero-sum game. You know, they don't believe that their place can get better unless somebody else's place manifestly gets worse. And I think this is a really, really important point, that actually, and and in this instance, it it is London, it's London and the South, they feel that London and the South has been, you know, soaking up all the resource that they've been starved of. And it's only by doing a different kind of levelling that they can get what they need. But the bar is high. Now, in, in some ways, the, the pandemic cuts a little bit of slack for Boris Johnson and, and his government, because I think that they they feel that some of the things that they might have expected at the beginning of the year to happen might not be able to happen so quickly, but they are nonetheless expecting something to happen. And I think that they will definitely be looking to see some sort of symbols of the kinds of things that they they feel they've been promised. Even if things don't transform overnight, they will be expecting to see symbols of change. 
The, the question of London is very interesting because, of course, as you say, they do have this view that somehow London has sucked resources from them. Now, an economist might actually turn around and say, well, uh, to be honest, uh, London in the southeast is the economic motor of the country. And without that economic motor, then you know there will be actually fewer resources going to their area. And economists might also, of course, challenge um, people's views about uh, immigration and, and how useful or not useful that is um, to, to an economy. I mean, that brings me on to, I think, in some ways, one of the most interesting parts of the book in which you talk about Peter Pan politics and you talk in some ways about the the way that, um, you know, this relationship between politicians and people has become deeply dysfunctional in a way because it infantilizes both sides. Um, Could you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yes, I mean, this is actually something that I flagged in my first book, um, talking to a brick wall, where I was reflecting on, you know, the labour years and where we had got to at the end of that. But my feeling is that it is a dysfunctional relationship, that, uh, you know, politicians will often cheerfully serve up Um, something to voters that they know actually isn't viable, doesn't work, won't deliver, whatever, you know, will make them a promise they know they can't keep. But at the same time, I, I, you know, I don't think that we should let the electorate off the hook. I think, I think we all as citizens do have a responsibility to be better informed. It's interesting, actually, at the end of talking to a brick wall, I did a, a sort of citizen's jury with some of the people reconvening, some of the people that I'd interviewed through that book, and asked them how we could work together to make politics better and work better for everybody. And one of the top things that they came back with was was better economic education for the public. They all felt, as they'd thought about it more, that they didn't often know enough to make the decisions that they were being asked to make at the ballot box, which I thought was quite interesting. They got to that completely themselves and they felt that that they needed to do that. It's such an interesting thing and this is not a quick fix, but I think that it's hard not to listen to the people that I heard in the Red Wall and not feel that that there's just a huge gulf between their views, their perceptions, which that's their reality. That is what they see. That is what they believe. And then, you know, in many instances, they're not wrong to think what they think. But their solution perhaps needs, uh, you know, more more thought. And politicians need to be more transparent too. Um, it's a very different kind of relationship. And, and I mean, how do you, and this comes back to the question, I guess, of methodology, you know, running a focus group, how do you force yourself not to challenge? Because in some ways, part of what you're saying is, is a challenge to politicians to do precisely that, to actually come back to people and to some extent argue with them and, and, to, and, and to be a little bit more honest, a little bit more grown up. Is that possible, really? I think there are ways of doing this in a, in a more structured way, which is deliberative research, which is something I'm also sort of a huge fan and advocate of, uh, which is where, you know, if, if, an, if an ordinary opinion poll will tell you what people think, given often how little they know about the topic, deliberative exercise, and here I'm talking about things like citizens' juries, citizens' assemblies, will enable you to do is to understand where people will get to if you give them some of the tools that they might need and the understanding that they might need to get into a different place. And very often they can and do get to a different place. I wouldn't use a focus group in this way. I mean, I think that with focus groups, yeah, I mean, I would, I, I would never. I think it would be a very poor moderator who, uh, who corrected people. I think you want to hear what people think and you want them to explore that themselves. 
sometimes what you might do is ch- is challenge it by saying people have said this and show them a statement or people have said that what i find just to that point actually about uh, say taking immigration's example often people kick back it's I, I don't know how many times i watch experts on the tv talking about something like immigration you know basically saying if only the voters knew these fantastic stats that i know they would change their mind well no they don't actually i mean they simply just challenge the stats they don't believe them because their anecdotal evidence is more powerful to them than your stats. But I think there are ways of breaking that down. There are ways of of, of doing it, but it's a different, entirely different methodology. Mm. And you, you actually talk in quite a lot of detail in the book, don't you, about a citizen's jury that effectively you ran between what you call, I think, urban remainers and some of the, the, the people in the, the seats that you're talking about, the red wallers. Can you tell us a little bit about how that went? Yes. What we were trying to do there, and this was something that that I'd been commissioned to do by Labour Together, the think tank who were, you know, wanting to sort of unite the different strands of the Labour Party. And it was part of the what went wrong review that was commissioned by them. The idea was, you know, people were saying immediately after the election, Labour is a divided party and it has these different tribes and they have very different attitudes. And that, of course, is absolutely true. So what we did was to bring together two groups of people representing, if you like, each of the main tribes, people from the Red Wall, and people from what we called as a shorthand urban remainers. They tended to be graduates, they tended to be more middle class, they tended to be people who had stuck with Labour. Um, so they continued to vote Labour in December 2019. And what we did was we, we spent the first session uh, on day one with them sort of deliberating within their own group, if you like, and developing their ideas with people like them. And we got them to uh, design the ideal party and the ideal leader and the sort of, you know, 10 key points for the manifesto from that party and so on. And they were very, very different, as you can imagine. I mean, probably best exemplified by who would be their ideal leader. And we had, you know, the urban remainers liked the idea of a young David Attenborough or Michelle Obama and the Red Wallers went for Tim Martin or to the next day we brought those groups together and they presented their ideas to each other and we then said right well, you know let's imagine we do a bit of gamification let's imagine that there's been an election but neither of you has won so you're not going to have to form a coalition party and we divided them up into groups jumbling up the the, the different tribes and got them to work together towards a shared manifesto and it was difficult at first I mean one of the young urban remainers took me to one side and said I can't believe I'm spending you know two days in a room in Manchester with people who think that Tim Martin ought to be prime minister I mean, what am I doing but uh, you know actually we got to a useful place by the end of the day they managed to agree on uh, on a on a sort of manifesto on the main priorities on what they felt they wanted their politics to look like and that meant compromise but it worked and interestingly enough, I guess for the future of Labour, it struck me that the urban remainers were slightly more amenable to having to compromise oh, than the uh, other side. hundred percent. And I mean, this was a very rational decision on their part, not one that we uh, encouraged them to take at all, but one they got to on their own. And the thinking was was this. It was, look, you know, these people have abandoned Labour. These people have voted Tory. You know, we stuck with Labour and Labour lost. And Labour can't do anything and there's no point in Labour being Labour if it can't win government and therefore we have to reach out to these people. The compromises, it you know, has to be on our side. And they, you know, they they sort of talked about themselves. They agreed, these are our red lines. These are the things that we, we feel we just can't change. So we want to really try hard to persuade. And these are the things that we perhaps are prepared 
to persuade on. Interestingly, immigration was one of the big sticking points. But in the end, we got to a place where, you know, we found an expression of what immigration policy might look like that both parties felt they could buy into, which was not to say no immigration. It was to agree that immigration was useful and could be useful to the economy and, you know, to our public services and so on, but then to sort of create quite a a sort of strict framework for how, how it might work. There is obviously a lot in here for Keir Starmer and and the people around him. I mean, clearly, as you show in the book, it wasn't all about Corbyn, although Corbyn was a big problem for these people, not least, you know, his perceived lack of patriotism, for example, and, um, you know, links with terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. If you had to give Keir Starmer, you know, just uh, two or three points, would you would you most stress? I mean, you do go into actually some more detailed recommendations in the book, but if you were to take just the top three, what would you say? I think patriotism, which you've just touched on, is incredibly important. And going back to this sense of place, so all the people that I listened to had this very powerful sense of their own community. As we've said, they didn't particularly relate to their nearest city, but they were also very, very, very patriotic. They really believed in Britain. They were very proud of their country. And almost the biggest black mark uh, that they gave to Jeremy Corbyn was the sense that he was not proud of his country. Worse than that, some people thought he was actually ashamed of, of Britain's past. And I think that one of the first things that Keir Starmer needs to do is to set out his vision for the kind of Britain that he wants to see and that he would be proud of and, and, and show what that looks like. So I think that is incredibly important. The second thing I think is about the, uh, the economy. I don't think that you can win an election if you're not trusted to run the economy. And, you know, all the polling suggests that Labour is not trusted at the moment to run the economy and still isn't even, even you know, under the new Starmer regime where much has improved in voters' eyes, but this is still a, a, a deficit uh, for Labour. And I think without addressing that, and I speak as somebody who, you know, worked very closely with Gordon Brown in the run-up to the 97 election, uh, where he did the most extraordinary work, and actually in the end, didn't manage just about to pull even on the economy it was just about enough and then subsequently uh, you know labor labor's management of the economy became one of the strengths of labor to the point where in 2005 i would say it was the main reason why labor won so so i think the economy and then the third thing is about the neglect that these people feel labor has to woo them this is not a superficial thing you know they believe that um that that labor has taken them for granted has done this thing of sort of parachuting in favourite sons, you know, who who would, would would sort of take on the seat and then look south to Westminster to build their careers and never look back. They need to be, you know, really focused on those places and the people in them. It can't be a bunch of snooty graduates from London looking down. And, and how important is Keir Starmer himself? And I guess this goes to some of the more recent focus groups that you've conducted, um, which suggest that actually people haven't really yet made up their mind about him. How important is he as a leader? I would say that he has made a pretty good start, given how, you know, g- given the, the party being completely on its knees, quite frankly, you know, to have drawn level or even a little ahead in the polls is quite an achievement in such a short space of time. He looks like a competent leader. You know, he looks, he looks the part, he sort of sounds the part, but he doesn't, they don't know what he believes in and what he cares about. And that's what he's now got to show people. And, and you know, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult at a time during the pandemic where the whole country is very focused on, on this one big story. And there's a, a, you know, a lot of pressure on him to 
not be challenging for its own sake and so forth. But he has to find the way to show people what he believes in. And he's got to clearly take his party with him too. Because in the end, he could be great. But if people don't know what the team behind him are like, that won't work either. Perhaps we can finish on some of the lessons for the Conservatives, because you say there is a lot in here that's um, positive um, for them. Um, We could start perhaps just by asking you about Boris Johnson and you know what seems like a mystery to to some people, which is how does this Eton educated Oxford graduate do so well among people who aren't necessarily so keen on middle class educated politicians? Yes. We were talking earlier about the extent to which you push back people in in, in focus groups and challenge them, but I mean, I, I got to the point where again and again I was saying, "Help me out here." You know, you've just told me that you don't like the snooty graduates from London, et cetera, et cetera. Here is Boris Johnson. He's an old Etonian. Now, there's one thing I'd say here, which I think is quite important for people to understand, which is that there's a nuanced view, which is that, you know, Boris Johnson is about as posh as you could get, whereas Keir Starmer, you know, is is sort of a self-made man and and, and so on. But if you're sitting in in Oswald Twistle or or Stoke or, or, or wherever and looking at those two men, they both just feel very different from you. And, you know, the gradation of poshness or, or, or whatever is, is, is something that's slightly lost. You know, they, they're just neither of them are very much like you. And that's that's the conclusion that you would draw at first sight. So in that sense, the, the sort of relative difference between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn or, uh, or Keir Starmer is, is not that important. It still begs the question of how does he overcome? How does he overcome being an old Etonian, uh, being incredibly posh, you know, Latin spouting, all the rest of it? And there's something about his demeanour, his sort of scruffiness, his, uh, you know, the hair, the suits, the, the, the slightly waffly language, the bumbling. There's something about all of that that, that weirdly works for him. And it's his um, positivity, isn't it? There's something about his demeanour, which means that he seems authentic. So you listen to him. And then what he says offers hope and positivity and it offers it in a very specific way. He, they felt that he was saying two things to them. One was about their communities and that they would get a fair hearing in a way that they haven't done for decades. And the other was about the country. One person said to me, when I look at Boris Johnson, I see a good old fashioned patriot and that's good enough for me. So those things were the things that absolutely sort of sung through for him. And I think it's really, you know, you, you, you cannot possibly overestimate the, the importance of him personally in, in giving people the license to vote Tory. They are now disappointed in him, though. The disappointment is palpable. So he's going to have quite a challenge. Obviously, for, for both, both men, there's some time before the next election, we presume. But, you know, he also has a big challenge on his hands to sort of win back some of that ground, some of the ground that he's lost through, through the coronavirus crisis. And what would you say, um, and I guess this is the final question, to a Conservative MP uh, who is keen on the idea, sometimes referred to as a kind of culture war strategy, of appealing to you know these people through social conservatism and not really worrying too much uh, about the economy to win the next election? Um, would, would you say that this book backs up that idea or would you say you need to be a little bit careful about that? Oh, definitely the latter. It's it's really interesting because obviously, um, you know, you can see how the Conservative Party has tried to create sort of traps for Keir Starmer, which traps, which, by the way, he's not falling into. So I'd say on that level, the strategy is not working. But I think there is actually a danger for the Tories 
that they become so mesmerized by their power in this area that they start to look like the people who are out of touch. Because in the end, you know, although there is an expression of discontentment, which, which, which comes through the sort of social conservatism, as, as, as you've described it, actually, a lot of the problems that people face are fundamentally economic problems. And a lot of the solutions will be fundamentally economic solutions. And if the Tory party looks like it is obsessing about trivia, then they will look like the ones that are out of touch. You know, less last night of the proms and more yes, doing something I, about I, the high street. Absolutely, absolutely. And the high street was, I mean, you know, gosh, important symbols there too. You know, the one thing that a lot of those towns have in common is they don't have a Marks and Spencer anymore. You know, there's nothing of value, nothing nice. It really matters. Yeah, absolutely. These things become very symbolic, don't they? Mm. Well, listen, Deborah, thank you ever so much for coming on to the podcast. I do recommend to all our listeners uh, Deborah's book, a really fantastic deep dive into what people in the Red Wall uh, are thinking and the lessons for both of our major parties. Before I finish, I want to thank Sophia Cassano once again for producing. And I'd like to end by saying, please do subscribe to the Marlen Institute podcast for future episodes. And don't forget that you can sign up to our mailing list on our website. You can also find us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram and on YouTube.